It was the year of fire. The year of destruction. The year we took back what was ours. It was the year of rebirth. The year of great sadness. The year of pain. And the year of joy. It was a new age. It was the end of history. It was the year everything changed. The year is 2261. The place, Babylon 5. Hi, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to Alternate Galaxies, where this time around we're going to look at a very special show for both Dave and myself, Babylon 5. Yes, very excited about this one. I hope that our audience enjoys it just as much as we expect to enjoy talking about it. Absolutely. Now, if you've not heard our last Alternate Galaxies, which was our first Alternate Galaxies episode on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, what we're trying to do here is basically talk about a show we like besides Doctor Who. Uh, We'll talk about why a Doctor Who fan might like it, why we like it, and just give you some hints and tips if you've never seen it before as to uh, how you can maybe get into the series and enjoy it too. That's right. For those of you who've seen Babylon 5 before, we hope you enjoy reminiscing with us. But for those of you who've never seen it before, this podcast is really aimed at telling you a bit about it and why you should watch it and how to get into it. So we hope that everybody can enjoy this. Absolutely. And as before, these are structured chats. We won't just ramble for the next hour or so. And uh, hopefully you'll get something out of it. So let's talk about Babylon 5. Yes. And what better thing to start off with, Dave, I think, than the theme music. But which one to play? I think season one is the classic. Season one? I'm almost a season three man myself. Mm, But season one it is. So, Rob, let's start off by having a very general high-level discussion about what Babylon 5 is. And we can't go any further without mentioning a name, and that is Joe Michael Straczynski. Or JMS, as he's almost universally known, or at least online. If you've not heard of JMS before, he has written the movies Thor and World War Z, if you've seen those. And uh, also heavily involved with Sense8, recently on Netflix. So if you know any of those shows, you'll know JMS's material as well. And he also cut his teeth as a writer and producer, I think, with uh, Murder, She Wrote. Yes. Yes, he did. And also, I should add, has written a hell of a lot of comic books, including The Amazing Spider-Man and different runs on Thor and Fantastic Four as well. So he is a geek's geek. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he certainly wasn't the first showrunner because we'd had people like Terry Nation before, Gene Roddenberry before, that sort of thing. But in the sort of modern era of sci-fi fantasy, he was one of the first that really took this whole showrunner concept and and ran with it. I mean, he devised the show. He wrote vast majorities of it. He controlled the casting. This was his vision and his show. Yeah, you say he wrote, you know, the vast majority of it. And just to put that in perspective for people out there, because I made a note of this, of the 110 Babylon 5 episodes, JMS wrote 92 of them. 
Yeah, and he actually broke Terry Nation's record that he set with Blake Seven for the most number of episodes written in a row. And not just broke it, smashed it. Oh, absolutely. So when you hear of these showrunners who might toss off, you know, two or three witty episodes a season of something, <laughs> Straczynski was writing, as I say, 92 of 110 episodes. How do you do that and not drop dead? Well, he'd been planning it for decades because he he planned Babylon 5 kind of like Harry Potter was planned by uh, J.K. Rowling. Beforehand, he knew where the characters were going to go, where they'll end up, where the plots would end up. And he had this whole five-year arc, you know, decades before he wrote the episodes. He knew, he had, he had the map of the star galaxies, you know, where the different planets were in relation to each other. And he worked out the tech and mm. it was it was a long time coming, this show. Yeah, and that um, that five-year story is very important. I've got a quote here that he always had conceived it fundamentally as a five-year story or a novel for television, as he put it. Yeah, that look, that's exactly right. And it did end up running for five years. So it was obviously an American show. It ran from 94 to 97 on P10. And then the final season, the fifth season, ran in 1998 on TNT. That's right. So a total of five seasons, plus a few telemovies and things. There was also a spin-off series that got cancelled, I think, gosh, before it aired. Uh, so that didn't do too well, called Crusade. Uh, so there's a little more than the 110 episodes. But tonight, I think we're just going to talk about that core 110 episodes on the whole. That's right, those five series. So... Rob, if you had to describe Babylon 5 in a sentence or two, what would you include? Oh, epic space opera, uh, Lord of the Rings in space. There's a controversial comment. And better than Deep Space Nine, which probably ripped it off. There's another controversial comment, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) I like Deep Space Nine as well, I have to confess. But yeah, it's a fascinating series to try and get hold of because it's all set on the space station Babylon 5. And this station has been conceived as mankind's last best hope for peace. So the concept of the series is that man discovered space travel, went out into space, they met new races, so they met the Centauri, then they got involved in the Dilgar War and they won that with a few other allies and sort of people went, oh, mankind's on the scene. Mm. Then mankind met them in Bari. We'll talk a bit about that later because that's a very important point. Mm. But they ended up in the Minbari War. Mankind was almost wiped out. And then in the follow-up from all that, they've created this space station where the major races of the galaxy can meet and basically be a UN. So they meet, they have the Babylon 5 Council, and all the races meet there and discuss things and deal with peace treaties and trade and negotiations. And it all comes from there, I guess. It does. And the reason it's called Babylon 5 is there have actually been four other Babylon space stations before this, and they've not ended so well. So when they say this is the last chance for peace, that's pretty much why, because they've tried this already a few times. Yeah, it is. And so within it, there's a five-year arc. So some of these storylines go over maybe year two, three, and four. Some of them go over years four and five. Some go over year one, two, three, four, and five. Mm. But there are these long arcs that are predetermined, and that's really important. They're predetermined arcs. So he knew where Jakar and Londo and Sheridan and the like were going long before they started their journey. Yeah, so when I say space opera, people's minds will probably go to Star Wars because that's the most famous, I guess, space opera out there. But I really do mean space opera. This is epic, huge, amazing stuff. Yeah, so should we talk a little bit about the major races that are involved? 
I think so. The races we've got, I'll, I'll mention a couple of them, and they're the Centauri and the Narn. So these are two races. The Centauri are very much based on the Roman Empire, and the Narn are reptilian, lizard-type things. And they've, well, they basically hate each other. The, the, the Centauri used to have a massive empire, and that included conquering the Narn. And they, they invaded the Narn homeworld, they enslaved them. Eventually, when their empire got too big and it collapsed, the Narn won their freedom back. And now there's a very, very hostile peace between them at the start of the series, with the Narn sort of wanting to push back a bit and you know, have their go at being, being an empire. Absolutely. So you have an ambassador from both of these races on the station. You also have their assistants. So you also have these secondary sort of characters who can provide often the comic relief, can often do things the ambassadors can't do. And just interesting, Dave, you say based on the Roman Empire, I often saw them in a Napoleonic kind of light. Of course, Napoleon was basing himself on the Roman Empire as well. I think it's in the way they dress, kind of that like late 1700s kind of look. Oh, that, that's true, but the Centauri are ruled by an emperor and a senate and all that sort of thing. So in that way, I think there's a bit of Roman uh, mythology there. Yeah, as I say, Napoleon had based himself heavily on that, you know, even calling himself emperor and so on. But uh, that's, that's right. So, I, I sort of saw them as sort of a halfway point between the two. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So uh, Ambassador Londo Malari is there from the Centauri and Ambassador Jacquard from the Narn. Yes, two of... Well, it's, it's, it's so hard to say this. I was going to say two of the great characters in this story, but there are so many good characters, as we'll probably get to later on. We will explore these two in depth, I think. What other races have we got, Rob? We've got the Minbari. Now, I mentioned Lord of the Rings in Space earlier. That was only half in jest, because the Minbari are kind of like space elves. You know, they're, they're very delicately featured... They are great at martial pursuits, even though they're not muscle-bound type people. They uh, they wear sort of kimono-like uh, clothing most of the time. They're a really interesting race. And the ambassador representing them on Babylon 5 is Delen. Yes, and they're very caste-heavy, the Minbari. There's the warrior caste, the worker caste, and the religious caste. And there's a very interesting balance in their civilization between those three. Delenn is often playing peacemaker between Londo with the Centauri and Jakar with the Narn. She's often the uh, the voice of reason. And it's worth mentioning that her offsider is Lanier, played by Lost in Space's Billy Moomy. That's right. The little boy from Lost in Space grew up and played a really, really great character in this show. Did I mention this show has a lot of great characters? It does. It does. And we also need to mention the Vorlons. Yes. Now, this is a very mysterious race and remains mysterious pretty much for all of the show, really. Ambassador Kosh is this huge... He fills doorways. He's in a, an encounter suit, I think they call it in the show, don't they? That's right, yes. That? Yeah. yes. Yeah. And you assume he might be some little weird alien. Think of perhaps the modern interpretation of ice warriors as being those weird little creatures inside the big ice warrior you know, gear. You know, something along those lines. So this big robed flashing lights guy with a very mysterious voice, you know, will often only answer with a yes or a no <laughs> or whatever when he's asked, you know, deep questions. Very enigmatic. Yes. Well, you know, you know, they'll ask him something very important about an important issue or something. And he'll say something like the avalanche has already begun. It is too late for the pebbles to vote. Yeah, <laughs> that's one of the great lines. Yeah. So... 
The Vorlons, though, aren't as heavily involved in the day-to-day stuff. Is that fair to say, Dave, on the station? Well, that's right. They're sort of seen as being a more advanced and an older race than all the others. So they, they sort of look down on the other civilizations, and they're almost there by sufferance just to sort of, you know, look after the younger races and keep an eye on them because they don't quite trust us, and we certainly don't trust them. And also, I think for practical reasons, it would have been a fairly boring character to have in in the middle of conversations most of the time, like once in a while to deliver a line like the one you just mentioned, or just to say yes and walk out of the room. That's fine. But in in conversations day to day, no, they they wouldn't have worked, I don't think. Yeah. So we have the space station. Along with the humans, we have those five races. They form the main Babylon Council. There's also a number of other minor races that come in there, the Drazi. Pakmara. The Pac-Mara, the game named after Neil Gaiman, in fact. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, they, they all come together, and that's that's the premise of the show, and uh, we'll talk a bit about what happens from there as we go along. But how did we discover this? Rob, tell us how you discovered Babylon 5. <laughs> well, Dave, um, my older brother had a video of the pilot. So at the earliest, this was sometime in 94, because that's when it was out in the US, but it was more likely about 95 or 96. I know by 97, I already had quite a collection of them on VHS. I was buying the uh, Warner Home Video releases to, to actually watch the show. So probably about 95 or 96, my brother introduced it to me. Uh, much in the same way he got me into Doctor Who as well. You know, my brother was always sort of out there as the older guy, you know, 10 years older than me, finding stuff and then sort of bringing it back and saying, here, you should watch this. In this case, he was saying, you know, something along the lines of, this is really good sci-fi and it's heaps better than Star Trek. Um, and so <laughs> I think he said something like that as he pushed the video into my hands, you know, go away, kid, and watch this. I've got to say I wasn't wowed, though, by the pilot. It was okay. But when I started watching the regular series, I got more settled with it. I was more comfortable. And then by the time season two came along and they swapped out the only, probably the only weak link in the cast, I started to think, my God, this is the best thing on TV. There you go. Mm. How about you? Well, I discovered it after a false start because initially when it first started screening here on commercial TV at about 11 o'clock, you know, in the middle of the week. It did, a couple yeah. of yeah, a couple of friends in high school said, oh, you should check this out. And I, I watched one episode that turned out to be one of the worst episodes of season one and thought it was terrible and didn't go back. <laughs> and then about a year later, when a group of us were planning a Doctor Who convention here in Melbourne, uh, my good friend Richard arrived to a committee planning meeting and said, I've just got the latest three episodes of Babylon 5 straight from the US. And some on the committee were really obsessed with it and said, oh, we've got to watch, we've got to watch it. And so he put this on and... This was you know, much, much later in the run. I'm going, this is brilliant. Mm. This is utterly brilliant. And I went and bought a couple of other season one tapes from Target, uh, a couple of the episodes that they said, oh, you know, if you really want to try it, check, check out these episodes in season one. And I did, and I fell in love, and I acquired the tapes of the first three seasons and binged watched it in about six days. <laughs> Well, that's the way to do it. And Dave, back in those days, the videos, as I recall, had two episodes per tape. And I think we were paying about 20 bucks a tape. If you're willing to wait for them to arrive in Australia, they were 20 bucks a tape. If you're impatient, like some of us down in Melbourne, we used to get them from a guy who imported the British releases. So they were about a year ahead of Australia, but they cost 40 bucks a tape. So we're basically paying 20 bucks an episode for these things to get them on time. So basically what you could buy a whole season for now on DVD, you're paying for two episodes. 
That's right. But we also, there was a bit of a, you know, the usual tape trade. We got the very grotty NTSC conversion tapes across from America. And in fact, at the convention that we planned, it went across a whole weekend, a Friday night to a Sunday afternoon. We were all hanging out, just the committee and a couple of friends late in the night on the Saturday night. And somebody said, hey, guys, I've got the last four episodes of season four of Babylon 5 on tape. Would, would that interest you? Oh. And we're like, oh, my God. Like, yeah, this is this is the climax of season four. So we convinced the hotel to put it on their internal CCTV circuit. And we went up to our room and we watched from about 1 a.m. to about 4 a.m. the last four episodes of season four. And anyone who knows the show knows exactly how big a deal that was. We just sat there and watched these terrible copies on the hotel television. But yeah, fun days. That was It was a fun fan to be part of. Uh, it, it was. And one of my overriding memories, although I was doing a lot of this through buying the Warner tapes, there was a news group, a really active Usenet news group um, devoted to Babylon 5. And I'm trying to remember whether it was an Australian one specifically. I think it was, because I think most of us on there were Australian and we'd often chat about, you know, what was going to be screened on. It was Channel 9 at the time, wasn't it? I think so, yes. Yeah, because people would often be calling them Nine, as in the German word for no, N-E-I-N. Um, <laughs> it's because they were always annoyed with them. So it'd be like, oh, yeah, Nine is going to show, you know, B5 at, you know, midnight this week or whatever. Well, in fact, I remember that user group, because if I can tell you one more story about this, when we were trying to do a bit of fundraising for our convention... We thought, well, if we've got these episodes of Babylon 5 before anyone in Australia has seen them, maybe we'll just do a bit of an illegal screening of them. So we thought, oh, we'll just advertise to the club members and say, hey, we've got some Season 3 B5. Um, if you want to come in for an afternoon, we'll put them on and you can watch them, you know, just pay your normal 10, 20 bucks entry or something. Someone on the committee put a notice about this on the user group just casually. We had several hundred people rock up <laughs> wanting to watch these things. And all we had was a tiny little room book. So we said, oh, look, those of you who want to watch it can stay. But look, we'll do another one next week. We'll hire a... You know, and we ended up hiring a proper lecture room and putting it up on the big screen. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people wanted to stay and watch it there and then. And it was a hot summer's day in Melbourne. Oh. And the room was packed. And I'll tell you what, when we opened that room at the end of the day, it was like a tropical jungle. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. But people were desperate to see these episodes and to know what was going to happen next. It, it was like Game of Thrones was now. You know, you just had to know what was going to happen next, where the characters were going to go, what's the twist. Yeah, but it was nowhere near as easy to get. Nowhere near. Like night and day, not not even close. Yeah, so if somebody said, hey, we've got these episodes on tape and we're streaming them tomorrow, you got there. Yeah, yeah, you definitely would. So we're, we're waxing lyrical here, Dave. What do we actually like about the show? What do you like about the show? I think the thing that really defines Babylon 5 is that it is a show for sci-fi nerds. Mm. It doesn't pretend that it's even trying for a mainstream six o'clock on a Saturday night audience. It doesn't even want to do that. This is a show, and I think it was one of the first shows really, particularly in on this sort of a budget that was able to go, right, we're going to make a show just for people who like sci-fi. They want to know all of the nerdy little details about the alien races. Mm. They want to know exactly how much the space station weighs and how it's powered and how the gravity works. And they want to know, you know, exactly how far it is to travel from Earth to Minbari or from Minbari to Narn and all of that sort of thing. That, that you know, really drove it home for us. But... 
in addition, there are also the arcs. We'll talk about that in a moment. But what's the big thing for you? Oh, look, there are so many things. But, you know, briefly, B5 is just very rewarding if you pay attention. Yeah. We've mentioned all these different races. And all these races have storylines and relationships with with each other that, you know, form part of the story. But then there are storylines within storylines. And if you're paying attention, not, not just to the big payoff stuff that happens at the end of the season, so to speak, but just all through each season and... Oh, Here's the thing, <laughs> Steve, Stephen Moffat, Doctor Who fans, Babylon 5 always ties things up really well. It's not just big concept after big concept that are, you know, forgotten about or wrapped up poorly. It's really tight. It's really integrated. It's really wonderful writing. So long as you pay attention, this is an absolute joy. Yeah, and it's, sometimes it's a payoff in the way that a character's going. We'll talk about that. Sometimes it's just little minor things that reward you years later, so... One character will have a vision in season one and you'll think, wow, that makes no sense. How, how does that come about? That's incredible. And then suddenly you get to a moment in season four where it happens and you go, oh, my God, it's about to happen. And, and you see it that in context. You go, this is huge. Or even little things. I think one of my favorite really long-term gags was quite early on in the series. I think it's even series one, maybe series two. No, I think it's series one where... One character says to the other, to the effect, you don't like me. And the other says, I want to be just long enough to see you executed so I can look into your lifeless eyes and wave at you like this. Mm. And does a little wave. That pays off three <laughs> years later. <laughs> it does. It does. I'll add, too, that B5 isn't as gritty as, say, something like the reimagined Battlestar Galactica. But it's a stepping stone of sorts between the kind of sci-fi we were seeing, say, in Star Trek, and by that I mean Star Trek The Next Generation primarily, compared to what we'd eventually see in BSG more recently. Not in terms of the look. The look is still rooted in the past. It still looks like an older TV show. But in terms of the feel, like the way the Earth government corrupts, the way a Nazi-like group takes control of security on the station for a while, the way the alien races can be absolutely brutal to each other. It's just got some extra kick. So if Star Trek The Next Generation was, say, a glass of beer, Babylon 5 is that same beer, but with a depth charger of Jägermeister dropped into it. It's similar, but different enough that you sit up and notice the difference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, regular characters do die in Babylon 5. Yeah, and the treatment of some of the races, particularly when they're occupied, is very, very realistic and very, very brutal. And some of the torture scenes as well. I can remember watching some of the stuff in season four with uh, Jakar and just going, wow, that's nasty. Mm. And we hadn't seen stuff like that for a well, I don't think we'd really seen it before. Certainly not in this sort of show. Very much so. So, so again, it doesn't look as gritty as BSG, but there is this underlying grittiness to it. The, the storylines are a bit rougher and more brutal in places, and I, I kind of like that. I also think there's a bit of a World War II influence to it as well. I mentioned that Nazi-like group who takes control of security for a while, the Night Watch. But in other areas as well, I think even Sheridan at one stage, or was it Sinclair, said he had like a family member in the in the Battle of Britain. And there's loads of World War II references when you go through it all. Yeah, there are, absolutely. And certainly there's some references or allegories of the Holocaust, without doubt. Yeah. Uh, another thing I like, Dave, 
is how it's so thematic. Each season feels like there's a big story to tell to the point where each season has its own sort of subtitle. So we have Signs and Portents in Season 1. We have The Coming of Shadows in Season 2. Point of No Return, Season 3. No Surrender, No Retreat, Season 4. And The Wheel of Fire in Season 5. And just hearing those names, you can instantly think, oh, that's the season where XYZ happens and this happens and that happens. And they're... They're complete little arcs, but part of a much bigger arc. That's right. And not every arc runs from the start of Series 1 to the end of Series 5. Some start later, some are wrapped up later. Some are just little mini arcs. Like the Minbari Civil War, for example, is all contained within one season. Yeah, exactly. And for this reason, it's really hard to pick a favourite season because they're all so different and have such different things happening in them, even though they're part of one big story, if that makes sense. They are. And... Earlier, you referenced JMS's comment that he wanted the show to be like a novel. And and it really is, because little incidents do build over time. So one of the big antagonists of the series are the Shadows. Yes. Who are the same age as a species as the Vorlons. And basically, they have a view that the way that you get alien civilizations to evolve is through conflict. Mm. So they they influence behind the scenes and then in, in the front lines and try and create this conflict between all the species in the galaxy. But when you first see the shadows, all you see is one ship just sort of flies by. And you go, what was that? Yeah. And then somebody mentions them in passing. And then you might see one of their ships do something and you go, oh, wow, that's that's pretty, pretty impressive. But you don't see them until much later in the series. And then suddenly when the shadows burst onto the stage and it all comes together, it's like, wow. And again, it's this... This slow build as if you're reading a novel and it just progresses the story and builds it up until, you know, you get to the key points. And, and there's even like, you know, people will make references that use the word shadow in them that are, you know, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle references to the fact there are shadows on their way. Yeah, yeah. But it, it really does. Um, it really does build up. You know, something else I like about the series, Dave, mm-hmm. the female characters. Now, B5, folks, is not a sausage fest. People think there's this thing on TV more recently where, you know, more and more women are getting involved, and that's a good thing. However, B5 was doing this 20-odd years ago. We have a series here where the 2IC of the station is female. That's Ivanova. Delenn, the ambassador, is one of the major characters. Talia Winters, the commercial telepath. Uh, Lockley, who ends up running the station. Natoth, as one of Jakar's... um, helpers leader alexander all of these major characters are women and there's even more in supporting roles i think jms always had a pretty good handle on writing realistically and and writing well and simply making the sexes reflect real life you know there's a lot of series where maybe one major character will be a woman and the rest are blokes but here it, it just felt so natural that there were men and women doing amazing things all through the all through the show making it feel like a really modern show as I say, because that's become a more recent sort of desire amongst uh, genre fans. But Babylon 5 was doing this a long time ago. It, it absolutely was. And you never felt as though, okay, here's the tough female or here's the strong female character. They just were really good female characters in tough jobs. Yeah, I mean, you think of Ivanova as being tough at times. She can be very harsh in the way she talks. She's a fighter pilot. She's 2IC of the station, so she's got to take command and kick some ass at times. But, you know, when there's a death in her family and she has to sit Shiva because she's Jewish, 
um, and you see the, her pain and her tears and, you know, she's she's a much more rounded character than I think she might have been written in other shows where she just would have been, oh, she is the tough female of the show. That's right. And by contrast, the men are given proper dimensions as well. Garibaldi, who's the head of security on the station, is a recovering alcoholic with some, you know, really tough stuff going on in his life, particularly his, his love life. He's allowed to show that vulnerability, but he's also allowed to be a tough character at work. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Franklin, without going into his issues, but when he goes walk about and gets into some trouble later in the series, you know, he's not as as um, flawless as he might seem. You know, he looks like the dashing young doctor who's got it all together, but he's really not. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that extends to the alien characters as well. I mean, Londo and Jakar are some of the best written characters on that show and I think a lot of people's favorite characters you know without without giving away massive spoilers here I think it's fair to say one of the joys of watching the series is watching those two characters evolve where you start off with Londo thinking he's a bit of an idiot Mm. that you sort of look at him with a bit of pity and you almost think oh he's the comic relief yeah he's like the fool but he eventually turns into a tragic hero yeah and you go through thinking he's he's a bit of a fool to really hating him and then really feeling sorry for him. Yep. Meanwhile, Jakar starts off as a warrior and ends up more like a monk uh, sort well, of sort of thing. In the first season, you think Jakar's a bit of a prick. Let's, let's not mince words. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. He, he's a really nasty piece of work in many ways. But yeah, as the series goes through, you first of all feel sorry for him and then you feel proud of him and then... It re- you've used these guys really evolve as they're buffeted by the story. And I, I can tell with just the way we're, we're sort of talking about them. I know, I know we're dancing around, you know, going really in depth because we don't want to spoil people who haven't really watched the show before. But you do feel so much for these characters. You can you can just be in tears and a mess at the end of just a, an ordinary Babylon 5 episode. It doesn't have to be the series finale where something major happened. It can just be a regular episode, but one of the characters who you care for does something that makes you really, really happy or really, really sad and just tears. <laughs> yeah, so I want to mention a couple of minor points here, but important points. One is the CGI. Yes. JMS was one of the first people to really appreciate that this new CGI thing meant that you could do big stuff kind of cheap. So at this stage, even stuff like Red Dwarf was still using you know the old models, and if you wanted to blow something up, you got the rough model and you filled it with gunpowder, and then you, you know, lit a match and it blew up. Babylon 5 is all done with CGI. So what that meant was for the first time when they say there's a fleet of 100 ships coming towards us, all you need to do was design one, hit copy and paste 99 times, <laughs> and th- there was a fleet of 100 ships coming towards you, or 200, or 1,000. Yeah, that's right. All special effects for B5 were computer generated. Um, initially, with a network of Amiga computers, and that's often the story you'll hear people say, oh, they did that all on Amigas. But actually, they moved away from the Amigas after a while and got onto Pentium powered PCs. Remember the Pentium day? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and they yeah, also had, yeah. yeah, they also had DEC Alpha workstations for any of the geeks out there, if you know what a DEC Alpha workstation is. And they did all this um, on Lightwave 3D. It's a computer program from NewTek. They also used Apple Macs, I believe, for the onset computers where you'd have like a computer screen, you know, that they're interacting with in some ways. Macs were running that. So, yeah, they weren't afraid to use new technology because at, at this time, 
really no one else was doing it to this degree. This was still years before George Lucas was going to remake the special editions with a lot of computer effects, for example. That's right. And it's also the period where the Hubble telescope for the first time was giving us really good photographs of what space looked like. And mm. a lot of those photographs are just slapped on and used as actual background in Babylon 5. So all of those nebulas and star clusters and all those images you see are actually real images of the galaxy. They're, they're Hubble telescope photos. They are. And I've got to say, as the series goes on, these effects get better and better. When, you, when you're back in the first season or two, they're really starting to show their age. But by the end, they got quite good and still you know, look pretty good today. Yeah, look, they do. I mean, it, it's funny to think now that it is over 20 years old and some of the effects do look 20 years old. But at the time, this was cutting edge. I mean, this was absolutely cutting edge for TV. Oh, yeah. Uh, just amazing. And as you say, the only way they probably could have done it because it saved so much money. That's right. And the other thing I need to mention is music. Ah, I was wondering when you get to this. <laughs> well, look, what can I say other than it is genuine orchestral style music and again something that hadn't really been done in sci-fi i mean next generation had some music now and then but a lot of it was sort of background music mood music tension music yeah whereas christopher frank's music really is powerful stuff it's it's proper suites of music i still listen to the albums now i think it's wonderful work yeah, very similar to when we did the Buffy episode of uh, Alternate Galaxies and we talked about the music there. This is a very similar thing, very memorable. And like JMS writing most of the episodes, am I right in thinking Christoph did the music for pretty much every episode? Yeah, absolutely. Which is just an amazingly large workload. Yeah, and JMS knew how to use music to enhance something. And you know, famously, there's one script where it got to a point where he just said, you know, this, this happens, this happens, this happens. Note to music, break our hearts. And I know I know the bit that it's referring to, and they do break our hearts. They do. They do. A lot of the arcs in the series are very sci-fi. They're about aliens fighting each other and different wars and different things influencing all the rest of it. But one of the big arcs is all about Earth and about essentially a, a coup on Earth that leads to a uh, totalitarian government taking over. And Babylon 5, you know, first of all, how do they exist within that frame? And then they, they lead the charge to fight back as the resistance against that government. And the politics there is actually very sophisticated. And that's, I think, one of the best story arcs of the whole thing. Oh, I think so, because we can relate to it being a human storyline. You know, it seems very close to our hearts. What would we do if our government did this? Would we go up against our government? Would we team up with races who in recent times have been the enemy in order to go up against our own people? What what would drive us to do that? You know, they're the sort of questions you, you might ask yourself when you watch it. Yeah, absolutely. And the final point I want to mention is I can't go without mentioning Walter Koenig as Bester. <laughs> we haven't got the favourite characters yet, have we, Dave? <laughs> no, but, but, but telepathy is a big part of the show because... Yes. By this stage, telepaths do exist uh, the, the, in the human race. They've started popping up in the human race, and the question is, why has that started happening? Yeah, and that's a big big part of the plot. Mm. But I, I love the way that the telepaths are dealt with here, because what the government says is, okay, telepaths need to be regulated. So what we'll do is we'll put them all into a group called the Psychor, and they all have to wear the Psychor uniform and they all have to wear a badge and show their telepaths so that we can control them, 
which I think is a very realistic reaction for a government. That's right. And the telepaths also have, they're a P rating, aren't they? They're different, uh, like a P4 or P8, whatever it might be. And the stronger they are, the more you would see them, I guess, in the Psycor. The lower ones you might see as commercial telepaths out working with people. Um, Famously in Babylon 5, they'll often be sitting at the table when someone's doing a business deal. They'll sit between the two people doing the deal to say to one or the other, if the other party is lying, for example. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And they're sort of used in that way, whereas the more powerful telepaths who can you know manipulate things with their mind and, and hunt down people at a distance are are definitely in the psychor if not psychops within the psychor yeah so if you're p12 which is the highest ranking you're a psychop and best is one of the best and uh his morality in babylon 5's morality is not always in step and you know again it was one of those big deals for the show when suddenly a, a cast member from classic trek rocked up as a recurring character, and you go, okay, wow, this is this has got some real gravitas. And of course, the killer blow was when Major Barrett turned yes. up on the show, and yes. indeed had a whole little soliloquy about how um how the empire is decaying and people have taken it over since her husband died, and it's not the same <laughs> as it used to be. Not yes. saying that that's relative to anything, but yeah. Yes, that's Major Barrett Roddenberry, if anyone wants to look her up. <laughs> yes, yeah, very good. I'll also just add about Besta. The, the great thing about his character is he is so nasty. And I almost want to say evil, but he's not quite evil. When you read some of the fiction novels, you can sort of see that he, he doesn't think he's evil at all. Like, you know, a lot of evil characters don't. And it's a very different role to, you know, Captain, there's a nuclear vessel, you know, from, <laughs> from Star Trek. A completely different character to check off. That's right. Now, before we move on with the show's faults, I think we should probably just mention a few of the other characters as well now that we've opened the floodgates with Bester. The uh, station obviously has a commander and a 2IC. I've mentioned the 2IC already in the form of Ivanova. In the first series, the role of commander is Commander Jeffrey Sinclair, although he then gets replaced for seasons two onwards by Commander Sheridan. Now, Dave, did you think that was a good move to replace him? I actually did, because just as you're getting settled with one person in command and they're in the command because they're trusted by the other races and they've got that rapport going, suddenly the president of Earth changes, he changes the commander of Babylon 5 and you've got someone that the other races actively dislike in Mm. charge of the station. It changes the dynamic and you've got to get to know, well, do we trust this guy? And, And I guess, you know, for Doctor Who fans... It must be a bit like when Patrick Troughton first took over as the Doctor and you go, well, I've just got to know this guy. Do I like this new guy? Yeah, and Sheridan, played by Bruce Boxleitner, who people remember from the Scarecrow and Mrs. King, perhaps, does initially come across as maybe a bit cocky. He's kind of a, a celebrated war hero. That's why some of the other races aren't really down with him. But I quickly warmed to him, and I think overall, I think moving to him was was the right move. And we do get to see Sinclair again. No spoilers. No, that's right. Look, I think they're both really good in the role. And Look, the show wouldn't work if the captain of Babylon 5 wasn't a strong character, and they're both very strong characters, but, but very different, and they play different roles in the story. Definitely. We've mentioned a couple of the other characters, so we'll just brush over them briefly. Garibaldi, the uh, chief of security, he has an offsider called Zach Allen. They provide some uh, some comic relief between them at times. Garibaldi's obviously a very serious character. Zach, maybe not so much. Well, well, don't forget, he was in Greece. He was in Greece. He was. 
he was. I'm surprised he didn't break out into song. (laughs) Well, we didn't have a musical episode of Babylon 5, perhaps. Yeah, thank goodness. Uh, (laughs) I've also mentioned Dr. Franklin in the medical bay, uh, a guy who seems to have it all together, but maybe, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's a bit overworked. Maybe something happens there. Who does that leave? Uh, We've mentioned Talia. We've mentioned Lita. We've mentioned Captain Lockley. I think we're good. I think we're good. Shall we move on to the show? Oh, um, Marcus. Marcus the Ranger comes in in Series 3. Ah, yes. Adding to the uh, Lord of the Rings vibe, we get rangers appearing. They're out there protecting the frontier. They get heavily involved with the station through the Mimbari. And maybe that's all I can say. I think so. So we will move then to a more critical look at some of the faults of the show. Yes. Now, look, I'll start off with something we've already discussed because we probably don't need to go over it too heavily, and that is the special effects. For all the, this is saving so much money, it lets us do things we could never do before. For the time, it looked really good. Even today, it still stands up. For all of that discussion, you show people an episode of Babylon 5 now, and I think the effects are the weak link. But for people who have watched Doctor Who, maybe not so much. Yeah, look, I think that is true. I, I You do need to be ready for 20-something-year-old effects. That's that's valid. Yeah. I've got to mention season five. I have that jotted down here too, so I'll see how closely your notes correlate with mine. So to, to give listeners the background, the show was originally written as a five-year arc. It looked as though the show was going to be cancelled at the end of season four. So what JMS did was wrapped up as many of the arcs as he could a little bit ahead of time. So season four is just packed with hit after hit after hit. Mm. Then Babylon 5 was given a fifth season on a new network. So he was able to finish what he wanted to and take some of the arcs that hadn't been finished and finish them, but he had to stretch them out and he had to put a couple of new ideas in there. So season five does feel, I think, a lot weaker than the other ones. There's a lot less material in them. And in particular, the telepath arc in there with the character of Byron is just lamentably bad. (laughs) But I will say there are some very enjoyable episodes in season five. And I think there are three out-and-out classics. Um, Day of the Dead, which is written by Neil Gaiman. Yes. The Corey's Mother, The Corey's Father, and The Fall of Centauri Prime. They are dead set classics. So even at its weakest, where there is a lot of weak episodes around them and some good episodes... There are still dead set classics in season five. Yeah, it's like you're peeking at my notes, Dave, because (laughs) I I go with all of that. Season five does have some really good episodes, but on the whole, you get the sense, gosh, this is wrapping up a bit early in season four, and then season five is, is maybe not so good. Even to the extent that someone like Claudia Christian, who played Ivanova for the first four seasons was kind of in contract limbo, like what's happening? Is the show coming back? Is it not coming back? You've got to let me know. And they couldn't let her know, so she moved on so that when the show did get a season five, they had to create the character of Lockley looking after the station, which really would have been Ivanova and would have been, I think, really good if it had been Ivanova. It was where her character was tracking all that time. So not only do the storylines get wrapped up, we even have characters disappearing from the show at the end of season four because something as mundane as contracts. Now, I will say they had the foresight to record an episode at the end of season four that they don't show until the end of season five. So you have characters like Ivanova coming back at the end of season five or appearing to come back. It was just that it was recorded earlier. Yeah, that is true. Um, The one other criticism I want to make is that whilst JMS is an excellent writer and he can write some really witty dialogue, I mean, he's up there with people like Moffat and Joss Whedon as a really good writer, but sometimes his episodes do feel a little bit overwritten 
or a little bit too twee or a little bit too clever. Mm. And particularly later on, so Harlan Ellison was the effectively the script editor on this show. And he was a very experienced person, you know, going right back to writing, you know, stuff in the 50s and 60s. And he's he's the guy who uh, has a credit on the opening of the Terminator movie for absolutely no reason whatsoever, <laughs> said the exactly. lawyers. Ellison was really, really good at taking a JMS script and going, mate, this is great, but come on, this bit here, bit too much? Oh, yeah, okay, I'll rewrite it. As he starts to back off, JMS does have a few too many moments, I think, where it is a bit overwritten. Would you agree, Rob, or am I being overly critical? No, I, th- I think that's right, especially as he grows in confidence. This is my show. I can do what I want. You know, I think I think that does start to come out more and more. And famously, of course, JMS was very big on interacting with the fans online. So he would actually go to the forums and the message boards, the very early forums and message boards, and sometimes somebody would say, this plotline doesn't work. It's ridiculous. Why did they do this? And JMS would come on and go, well, let me explain to you exactly why they did this, <laughs> which was really cool. But the other thing is he could see all the fans going, oh, that bit was so awesome. And I love the way they did this. And JMS, I think a couple of times was a bit tempted to go, oh, I might do that bit again. And it didn't work the second time. The character of Zathras particularly, when he tried to bring him back, I thought fell completely flat. But it was on the back of all the fans going, oh, we love Zathras, he's so funny, he's so clever. He worked great in the stories he was meant to be in, but bringing him back just to get the fans to go, hey, Zathras is back, I thought fell flat. Yeah, I I think it's probably one of the first times like a showrunner had been in touch with fans to that degree. Because you've got to remember, people out there listening, if you're younger, uh, Usenet at this time wasn't that big. And when you went down and drilled down into each of these individual sections, in the B5 section, there might have only been a few dozen people writing regularly, you know, making threads or replying to threads. So if you were in there, and I was in there, talking away, JMS was talking almost to you, because there just weren't that many people in there. It was it was rather amazing, just putting aside the way he may have been influenced and so on by fans. Just in general, the fact that he was talking to fans, and it wasn't like today if Stephen Moffat popped up in a forum, there'd be you know, thousands of people bombarding him. This was just almost like a small party <laughs> or gathering on a regular basis. It was quite quite fun and quite surreal now that I look back on it. It was. It was very cool, though. It was. Something quick. I'll quickly mention, too, because you mentioned Harlan Ellison being an old-school writer doing some sort of script editing work. The show also had DC Fontana writing for it. She wrote, oh, at least a, probably a dozen episodes for the original series of Star Trek and so on. So there were some really experienced writers contributing ideas to or even scripts to Babylon 5. You know, I think JMS knew his stuff and was like, you know, I'm going to pick the best of the best of these sci-fi writers in America and just pull them all in here. Yeah, Peter David, who wrote some of the classic Next Generation Star Trek novels, writes some episodes. And of course, Neil Gaiman writes an episode. Yeah, gosh, he gets around. He does, he does. (laughs) I've got one more fault to mention on my uh, notes here, and that's the overall budget and the sets don't always look the best. Uh, we mentioned, you know, the the computer-generated graphics helped, you know, the overall budget. But even still, I don't think they were spending a hell of a lot of money on the show. And when you look at a lot of the sets, they look like 
are set. You can almost see the fake metallic paint on wood, you know, on the walls. Now, that said, Doctor Who these days in super high definition is starting to look much the same. I think it was Under the Lake, for example, I was thinking how cheap and fake looking the underwater base seemed in places. B5 was the same, but we didn't need high def to see it. It was just really cheaply made. And it does take you out of some scenes when the sets are dressed so cheaply and so poorly, like someone's had, you know, 50 bucks at the local Ikea or something. To, to dress a, you know, someone's quarters or something like that. Yeah, look, I don't disagree with you. Sometimes it's a bit of a virtue because they do imply that, you know, Babylon 5 has got a budget and it's a tight budget. And, <laughs> True. And, and they do work that in, or particularly down in Down Below. So they, they have a part of the space station where the unemployed basically hang out, basically a ghetto. Uh, yeah. You know, in, anywhere that's got that many people in it has got some sort of you know, unemployed ghetto type area. And that, that, that works out well. And of course, there are the ones where they go, look, we can't do this set on a budget. Let's do a CGI background. And that at least allows you to go, well, we get this is a big, impressive space or planet or whatever, but it does look like cheap sci-fi CGI. For me, this is one of the hardest sells you know, trying to get someone into the series, you know, just for them to look past it because the stories and the characters, which are really what's important, are just beautiful. I agree. So let's discuss why a Doctor Who fan should watch Babylon 5. Have you got some thoughts? Well, I'm going to start off by saying very simply, JMS is a Doctor Who fan and Doctor Who influenced the story to the point that... The reason why the Earth Minbari War started is exactly the same as the reason why the Earth Draconian War started in Frontier in Space. <laughs> well spotted. Yeah, yeah, it's it's and he, he admits it, it's it's a complete steal of that idea. So you can see classic Doctor Who's influence of Babylon 5, and then I think you can see Babylon 5's influence of new Doctor Who. Yeah. Oh, look, com- completely agree. For me, and this is something we've already touched on, so I'll be brief, Babylon 5 is really intelligent science fiction that rewards the long-term viewer. And I think Doctor Who fans fall very fairly into that sort of category. People who will stick with the show long-term want to dig into all the nooks and crannies of storylines, want to understand where a character's come from or how a planet operates and what its government is, you know, what has happened 100 years in the past to make characters act the way they do. And Babylon 5 is very much all of that. JMS has also credited Blake Seven as being a very big influence on that. Blake Seven famously was one of the first British sci-fi shows where, okay, every episode had its own story, but if you watch them one after the other over time, a bigger story came out. And JMS goes to town on that concept here. But if you like Moffat's arcs, you're going to love JMS's arcs. Oh, hell yes, because they make sense. (laughs) Is that too harsh? (laughs) Well, we won't go down that rabbit hole. That's for our January episode of uh, Doc- the Doctor Who show, Rob. I, I think so. I think J.R. Southall's just exploded somewhere in Exeter. That'll do him good. <laughs> Is that all we have for Doctor Who fans in the show? Yeah, look, I think so. I think if you enjoy modern Doctor Who, you'll see its uh, antecedent partly in Babylon 5, and you'll see a lot of classic Who influencing Babylon 5. All right, then. Now, a section we did in the Buffy episode, and it worked really well, so let's bring it back, is how far should a new viewer, Dave, stick with Babylon 5, and what's a good episode for them to try out? Okay, so I'll be interested to hear if you agree with me on this, Rob. Mm -hmm. 
season one of Babylon 5 does take a while to find its feet. There's some really good episodes in there. There's some very ordinary episodes in there that, that kind of are just, they're like a bad episodes of 60s sci-fi that have lost their place. Mm. Um, stuff like Infection, for example, or TKO. They're, they're, they're terrible. But by the end of series one, there's some really big punches. There's stuff like Signs Importance, Chrysalis. And if you get to the end of series one and you're, and you've got nothing out of it, particularly out of that last episode, it's probably not for you, but give it the full first series. Mm-hmm. If you want to dip into it and you just want to try one episode to see if you're going to like this, I recommend the season one episode, Babylon Squared. Ooh, very interesting choice. Now, there's a bit of arc stuff in here, so don't expect to know it all straight away, but you'll quickly get to know some of the characters. You'll get to see some of the sophistication and the way that they play with time and space and everything. And... Uh, if you've got to the moment in Babylon Squared where you hear the words, ah, no, not the one, not the one, and you've got <laughs> nothing out of it, maybe the show's not for you. Okay. Well, I'm just looking at my notes here, and I guess I'll start by saying I have always found it really hard to introduce people to, to B5, as I've, as I've been hinting all along. And I generally avoid showing the pilot altogether. And I'm generally very, 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 very apologetic about the first series. So I think we're on the same track there. I almost want people to start with season two, but that's unreasonable. So I'd say to people, much like you, Dave, watch season one, but perhaps with the thought that it's an entree you might not entirely like for a main course you're going to love, if I can put it that way. Yeah, yep. And for an example episode... I'm going to stick with season one because I think that makes the most sense for what we're, we're doing here. And I'm going to say Death Walker. Oh, nice one. Yeah, Death Walker. So this is a very intriguing, very sci-fi plot. It gets all the ambassadors being very political with each other as they debate how to handle this war criminal. And it ends in a very B5 way. Now, I'm trying not to be spoilery. I'll just leave it at that. But I think that's a ripper episode, and that is from season one. It is. And the next episode following it is Believers. And if you watch that one expecting normal sci-fi plots, you're going to be in for a shock. I haven't got the list of episodes in front of me. Is that the one where the family has a little boy having medical treatment? That's the one. That is amazing. And has a very B5 ending as well. It, It does. So there's a couple of episodes in there that if you just want to sample a couple, we recommend those ones. Rob! We'll start to talk about some favourites now. Who is your favourite character with a few honourable mentions, if you want? Ah, my good and dear friend. (laughs) It's Londo, hands down. I liked Londo from the start. And as the story opened up and this character of fun and frivolity, who we called a fool earlier on, grew increasingly darker and was drawn into something horrible that, you know, it was what he wanted. But when he got it, he maybe realised that he didn't want it. That's the kind of tragic hero which I've said in past podcasts I absolutely love. So it's it's Londo, 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 hands down for me. But with honourable mentions to Garibaldi, Ivanova, Besta, but obviously I start looking down the cast list and I can say something good about all of them. You know, how can I not be rating Sh- uh, Sheridan here or Delenn or Marcus and, you know, and, and on and on it goes. It's a rare ensemble, I guess, where I feel this way. But all the characters here I adore. But if I had to put one at the very top of the pops, it's Londo. Snap! <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I had Peter Jurassic as Londo as my number one for all the reasons you've stated. Brilliantly acted, but for, for you to go for you to go through such a range of emotions about this character, 
over five years is just a wonderful achievement. He's great. Jakar playing off him, going through almost a parallel but reverse arc is really good as well. Garibaldi, like you mentioned, a really strong character, really well played. Uh, and I also mentioned Marcus here. I think Marcus is really fun. He's the token Brit, yes. which, which, which means he gets to say things like, come on, you cheap bastard. And you know, <laughs> Words you can say with an English accent on US television you couldn't otherwise get away with. Uh, but as you say, so many good ones. But look, Londo with Garibaldi and Marcus, as my honourable mentions, were my picks. Well, well, good, good pick, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> now... That leads us, I guess, to our favourite episodes with honourable mentions. I went first last time, so Dave, the floor is yours. Okay, so it was a real struggle to pick my favourite for these ones because there are so many good ones. One of the things that I've found interesting about watching B5 again over time is sometimes episodes that you thought were amazing the first time you saw them because suddenly there'll be a plot twist or an arc piece of information or a big reveal and you go, wow, that was incredible. When you go back and watch it again and you know the reveal, you go, actually, nothing happens in this episode. Mm. Whereas some of the episodes where it's just a a more local character-driven story are the ones that have aged really well. It also depends sometimes on how you watch them. If you're binging a few episodes at times, and I notice this with all shows, not just B5, sometimes you can skip over a really good episode just because it was, you know, the third episode in five that you were binging at the time. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I've picked a a variety of episodes for my honourable mentions. In terms of sort of big arc stories, Chrysalis, which is the climax of season one where some big stuff happens and there's some big Mm -hmm. character stuff. And No Surrender, No Retreat, which is the start of the two-part conclusion to the Shadow arc. It's got some great sci-fi. It's got some great stuff with Londo. Uh, some great stuff with Mr. Morden. Ah, Mr. Morden. Mr. Morden. So that's really good. But for nicer little self-contained episodes, Distant Star is a personal favourite, which is the one where the explorer ship comes to meet Babylon 5, and Confessions and Lamentations, which is an episode that's a very heavy, very 90s HIV parable, and it absolutely gets you in the heart. It punches you in the guts. It's an incredible episode, Confessions and Lamentations. But my favourite, I'm going for Messages from Earth. Oh, yeah. Which is probably the episode the whole series turns around. The crew on the Babylon 5 discover that there's a link between the shadows and Earth that could be extremely detrimental to everyone if it goes ahead. They have to travel back to our solar system to stop it. So it's got everything. It's got big sci-fi, big effects, big character moments. It's got drama going back on the station. I just think this is a wonderful episode of television. Messages from Earth is going to be my pick as a favourite. Rob, what have you got? And are there any matches? Uh, There's matches to something you said earlier. (laughs) And by this, I mean, for honourable mentions, I picked three from the final series just to show that it's not all pants because I thought, oh, this is just too hard to pick across five series. So I'll pick from the series that everyone says is the weakest link. Two of these, the core is mother, the core is father, and the fall of Centauri Prime, you've mentioned earlier in this episode. So snap on those. Um, The core is mother, the core is father. Do you know that has the original Audrey Griswold in it from the Vacation movie? (laughs) (laughs) So it does, yes. (laughs) There's an aside for you. I like it because it gives us a different look at the Psycore. You've got Bester running around with these two younger um, agents, and it's just a different feel. And if, if I'm not mistaken, did that have a different opening credits as well? It did. 
it had the Sitecore logo replace the B5 logo. Yeah, so in in a similar way to the Star Trek Next Generation episode Lower Decks, I think it was called, where it focused on people who weren't the main cast, here we just had a, a sort of a, a different skew on B5, and it was really, really good. Uh, the Fall of Centauri Prime, of course, is the culmination of Londo's story, where I think he makes the comment that he used to be free but powerless, and now he has all the power but no freedom, and that's where he ends up as this just tragic character just beautifully written and the third one i've picked from that series is sleeping in light yeah now sleeping in light i mentioned earlier this is what they recorded at the end of the fourth season so it's an episode where characters you haven't seen for all of season five are suddenly back like ivanova and so on and it's a skip forward in time to where some of the characters have passed on in the timeline and they're reflecting on where things are at and it wraps up sheridan's story uh, obviously, Sheridan and Delana are a very important couple as the series goes on. And it's just, wow, it's just a great ending to the series. Yeah, it is a very good ending to the series because the ending was planned before it was written. Exactly. It pays to plan, folks. But for my favourite episode, and this is so hard because you would have been the same, Dave, looking down that list of five seasons and 20-something episodes per season, 110 stories. Yep. How do you do it? But I've come up with one, and that one is Endgame. I thought you might. I was very tempted to have that on my list. I'm glad you've got it. <laughs> now, this is the conclusion to the President Clark storyline, so it gives some majorly heroic moments for Sheridan as he races to save Earth. And also Marcus, who we've mentioned, Marcus the Ranger, trying to save Ivanova. And there's that scene where, in my mind, because it's been a long time since I've seen this episode, the camera is sort of tracking through the ship. And Marcus has clearly beaten seven shades of hell out of anyone who is going to try and stop him from getting to Ivanova to help her. And it's like... Wow. You, you you feel it. You think, oh, well, that's what love is. <laughs> that's that's what you do for someone you love. And you just know what that feeling's like. It's so powerful. And he gets to fulfill his destiny. And he hasn't really known what he wanted as a character, I think, until then. I, I'm trying not to spoil it, but gosh, that's so good. TV doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, I agree. That was one of those episodes we watched at 3am in a hotel room in 1997. And I'm so glad that I saw it with friends because... To experience such a powerful episode with other people, just all looking at each other going, wow, oh my yeah. God, wow. Like it, it was just, yeah, really, really great star. Yeah, I I was just tears when I watched that episode at different places in the storyline. Yeah, good call. Very good call. We also like to talk in these things about our guilty pleasure episode. So Rob, have you picked a guilty pleasure episode? I have. Dave, hands down. My guilty pleasure episode is, and I need the drum roll sound effect. Zaha Doom. Ooh, tell us why. Well, at this point in the series, the line, if you go to Zaha Doom, you will die. We've heard so many times and you think, oh my God, Sheridan's going to Zaha Doom. How's he going to get out of this? It's the finale to end all finales. And when he calls that white star down to crash on his position, while simultaneously elsewhere in the galaxy, Delan is watching a farewell message from him. It's tears again, Dave. It's just tears everywhere. This is a major guilty pleasure for me, just particularly that scene of him calling down the white star and his wife's reaction and the 
I can't give too many spoilers, but gosh, I just love that. Yeah, it's a really good episode. And of course, it features as a guest star, uh, Melissa Gilbert, who was Laura from Little House on the Prairie, all grown up and playing Captain Sheridan's wife. Yes, it's it's wonderful. Uh, you know, it's it's just a guilty pleasure episode because it's the one where I put on knowing that there are just scenes that are just going to make me emote. And I, I think that's almost the definition of a guilty pleasure episode. You know, it's going to push your buttons in some way, either to cry or to laugh or whatever. And, and, and it does it for me big time. Yeah, no, really good call. Really good episode. So I had a couple of choices for my guilty pleasure. I was tempted to go with Sick Transit Via because it's a silly episode, but it's kind of funny. Yes. I was tempted to go with Ceremonies of Light and Dark because the plot's terrible, but Marcus has so many good lines, you know. His line when he needs more information about, you know, you get more help with a kind word and a piece of two before than you do with just a kind word. <laughs> or, or, or the bit where he goes into the bad guy's den to get information about where a hostage is being kept and he threatens that, you know, if they don't tell him he's going to do stuff. Then it cuts to him knocking the last one of them out and going, bugger, now I'll have to wait till one of them wakes up. <laughs> So I enjoy his stuff in that, but I went for yes, and the rock cried out, "No hiding place." Oh, good use of music at the end of that one. It's so surreal and it's so weird, but it's so intense and it's so enjoyable. It, it just has to be seen to be understood. Um, <laughs> yes. And speaking of that music, there was a group of us that were very big Babylon Fire fans on a overnight train from Melbourne to Sydney, and we stopped at the station called the Rock and. A particularly drunk member of our crew suddenly decided that was the time to start singing the Rock Cried Out No Hiding Place song from this episode at about 3am in the middle of nowhere. So it has memories for me in that as well. Did you join in in sort of a southern choir, sort of a harmony way? or No, because no, we didn't want to be kicked off the train so we were trying to <laughs> shut him up. <laughs> well, I, I think that that is an excellent Guilty Pleasure episode as well for completely different reasons to mine but completely just as valid reasons and that's what Guilty Pleasure episodes are all about I guess and interestingly both from season 3 when things are really hot up oh season 3 you know earlier when you were saying let's play the music from season 1 I'm thinking oh, I'm a season 3 guy because that's just where the brown stuff hits the fan frankly <laughs> You know, it's it's great. Yeah, it is. It is. There are there are some stories about season three and some of my friends that I cannot repeat on the podcast. I'll tell you when we turn the mics off. Okay. <laughs> now it's not just us commenting on Babylon Five. We've got some listener feedback. I'll lead off first from uh, Mike Solko tweeting at Ma Solko. I think Mike's being a bit of a wag here because he says I still need to catch up on the first four before diving into it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mike. Good one, Mike. Uh, Gav Wood, who treats at Wood underscore Gav, said, Rewatched it recently. Definitely could have ended after Series 4. I admire the sheer ambition of the storytelling. Performances range from the awful to the sublime. That said, I could have watched Peter Jurassic at Angelus Katsoulis reading the phone directory. So they yeah. obviously play Londo and Jakar. And he goes on to say, Londo and Jakar are two of the greatest most well-realised characters in all of sci-fi. I completely agree. Yeah, well, we've waxed lyrical about both of those. Yeah. Ian Willis at Ian2Tars2, that's an interesting uh, handle, he says, Babylon 5 was well-written, showing that TV sci-fi could be harsh and gritty, and Star Trek DS9 copied it. Look forward to your next episode. <laughs> Thank you, Ian. You've backed me up on something I alluded to earlier. And should we just mention that just briefly, Dave, that JMS had gone 
to the the network that made Star Trek and with his ideas and they said oh thanks but no thanks and then next thing they started making a, a show about a, a space station that seemed very very similar it, it, it was very very similar and what was the real killer is that when Deep Space Nine didn't quite know where to go it suddenly started doing these plots with these long arcs about mm. intergalactic warfare and plot twist and look I love Deep Space Nine for exactly that reason, but there are some similarities. <laughs> uh, moving on, Samuel Payne uh, from The Complete Menagerie, one of my top Doctor Who podcasts. He says, I seem to remember some of the CGI was rendered on an Amiga 1200. Hashtag, I like it. <laughs> Listeners of Complete Menagerie will know what that means. Uh, that hashtag. I like it. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, we touched on this earlier as well. Some of the earlier episodes did have a, a bank of Amigas. They may have been 1200s working on it and doing the uh, graphics. Uh, really good stuff. Now to conclude, we have a, an audio from Mark Atkinson from the Proctor Who podcast. Hello, Mark. How are you? Hi, Mark. <laughs> Hello. Uh, but because it's nine minutes long, Mark's really gone to town and given us some really great stuff. We're going to play it at the end of this episode. So we'll skip forward now from listener feedback into uh, our final thoughts on Babylon 5. But at the end, you will get to hear from Mark. So do stick around. It's, uh, it's worth waiting for. So, Rob, we've talked a lot about Babylon 5. We talked about the characters, the arcs, how it was made, what it's about. I really don't have much more to say other than it still stands up to me as intelligent, well-written sci-fi. Do you have any other general points you wanted to raise? I do. I want to flesh out just a little more that B5 as Lord of the Rings theory that I've thrown around a couple of times. Oh, please, please. You know, I've mentioned the Mimbaria-like elves. Um, the Vorlons perhaps could be like the Maya or the, the godlike characters in Lord of the Rings. Zahadum and the Chasm of Khazad-dum. Uh, it's almost, you know, the same the same word. We have rangers and rangers. We've got a grey council and a white council. And one of the really big ones, I think, is Delenn giving up her racial purity to become a little more human, like Arwen giving up her elvishness to become a little more mortal. So I think there are some real parallels to Lord of the Rings in here. I can't just be imagining all of that, can I? You're convincing me. <laughs> The other thing I wanted to mention is something incredibly sad, but something that does need to be mentioned. And that's what I guess perhaps more uncaring people refer to as the, the curse of B5. And that's that so many of the cast, as we sit here today, are no longer with us. We've been waxing lyrical about Jakar. Andreas Katsoulis is no longer with us. We've been talking about Garibaldi. Jerry Doyle has passed away. We've been talking about Veer, one of your favourite episodes Sick Transit Veer. Stephen First is now gone. Uh, Richard Briggs, who played Dr. Franklin, is gone. Michael O'Hare, who played Sinclair, is gone. Jeff Conaway, who played Zach, is gone. Uh, minor characters like Zathras, who we've spoken about, uh, or Tim Choate, he's gone. Nartok, uh, one of Jakar's offsiders, is gone. It's really sad. And at the time of the 20th anniversary, there was an in-memoriam video that had over 20 people on it. Uh, some of them on screen, some of them off screen, which is just nuts. I mean, think of something like Firefly, which is already 15 years old itself. Imagine a big chunk of that cast, you know, even the ones you love the most, and think if they're already dead. It's like that. Think of the Star Trek The Next Generation cast and put a line through, you know, half of the main cast. Yeah, I was going to say exactly that. Next Generation's about 10 years older, and yeah, it's still got all its cast. Yeah, so when people say the curse of B5, I, I, I never like expressions like that. They make me a little uncomfortable. But gosh, it, it is very unusual to have so many of them pass away already. 
Yeah, look, you're absolutely right. It does need to be mentioned. On a lighter note, though, I am pleased to say I have met three of the cast. Oh, who have you met? So I've met Claudia Christian, who played Ivanova. Yes. And and let me say, she is very similar to the character she plays. <laughs> I yes. have I've met Jason Carter, who played Marcus. Very cool. And uh, I was actually friends with the people who ran the convention that got him down. It was one of the early fan conventions. And usually when we got big stars down for a few days in Melbourne, they'd say, oh, do you want to see the sights? Maybe go down to Wilson's Promontory and see the penguins or something. And Jason Carter said, can we just go to the pub? <laughs> good man. So he was a good man. And I have met Bruce Boxleitner. Oh, that's very cool too. It was. A, he's, he's one of the very few stars of any series that I've actually made a point of getting a proper photo with. So I have got that photo. And his Q&A was really, really good. He was so open. He was so honest. Uh, there was one point where somebody asked him a very nerdy question about a very technical plot point, and he looked at him and said, you know, it's a TV show. Just enjoy it. <laughs> oh, that's that's cool. Interestingly, he said that he would have been very happy to keep playing Captain Sheridan for many more seasons. He said, look, I know JMS had a fixed five-year plan. That's fine. He did it. He wanted to move on. He should have handed the show on to somebody else and kept making more episodes. The cast would have loved to do it, but... JMS insisted, no, we will uh, stop at the end of my story. So it was interesting to hear Box Lightning talk about that. But, yeah, very, very pleased to have met all three of those. Yeah. And, you know, earlier on I mentioned him in relation to Scarecrow and Mrs. King. But, of course, he was also in Tron, which yes. loads of sci-fi nerds love as well. Yes, he was. Yeah. No, that 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 is awesome. But, uh, yeah, look, those two things... Babylon 5 is Lord of the Rings and the Curse of B5. They're the things I wanted to to mention here at the end. I think we've we've touched on, without spoiling people, I think a lot of the good in B5. I think so too. Well, I guess that just leaves us to say where Alternate Galaxies is going next, Dave. And this is your baby, this next one. I'm not even going to be involved. Well, maybe I'll produce it, but... <laughs> yeah, no, I'm very excited. My absolute favourite TV show is where we're going next. We're going back to the UK. And we're going to do an episode on Blake's Seven. And we're going to release that, we hope, in very early January of 2018 on the 40th anniversary of Blake Seven first going to air. Yes. Now, I'm going to step aside for that one because you've got a special guest in mind who knows immeasurably more about Blake Seven than me and will be much more entertaining than me on the topic. We hope so. So I uh, look forward to that in a couple of months. Of course, we'll have our normal Doctor Who show released on the last Sunday of November, where we'll be talking about regenerations. We will. And we're also cooking up a few ideas, doing some specials on Doctor Who novels of different kinds and introducing each other to certain novels. But that's all I'll say on that for now. Yeah, we're working on that one. It may be out sooner than we think. It may be out a little later. We'll, we'll decide and let you know. Yeah, there's lots of stuff between now and the end of the year. There's, there's also Star Wars to review, Dave, when that comes out. Oh, yeah. Have you got your midnight screening tickets? Do you know this year, unlike last year where I did midnight and you didn't, this year I'm not doing midnight, I'm doing it the next day. <laughs> but I am seeing it on day one. Uh, I'm doing the midnight this time. My brother-in-law is out from the UK and he has insisted we do, and I didn't take that much convincing, so. That's fine. Well, I'll still be seeing it on opening day, just not at midnight. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, that's been our B5 episode. If you've enjoyed this, if you have any questions about B5, if you want to comment in general on this or anything we do, the usual address, hello at the DW Show, or tweet us or find us on Facebook, and we'd love to hear from you. Until then, I've been Dave. And I've been Rob. Bye. Bye-bye.
Hi, Robin Dave. It's Mark Atkinson here from the Prog to Who podcast, popping in with my thoughts on Babylon 5, because I bloody loved it. Uh, I really did. Um, Doctor Who obviously always been my number one show of all time, uh, but for quite a long time, Babylon 5 was my number two show. I really, <laughs> if you pardon the expression, I absolutely adored it. It's only recently been surpassed by Game of Thrones, maybe into two. This is maybe number three, but still that's high, isn't it? So my second favourite, no, third favourite show of, of all time, Babylon 5, yeah. I first watched the pilot episode, The Gathering, on VHS. I rented it out and really enjoyed it. Well, it was curious, in it? And was really curious about Kosh. I loved Kosh right from the beginning. Fascinated with him. So when I saw that the show was uh, coming to Channel 4 over here in England, I made sure I watched them all. And because uh, I, I was had a video recorder at the time, I could record them as well, so I watched them more than once. So I really got into the, the story, fascinated by the characters. was a little bit dubious about Sinclair, you know, the acting, because I, he was a little bit wooden, wanting, let's be honest. So when Sheridan took over in season two, I was, I was really joyous. Because to me, Babylon 5 hit its peak in season two. I would say that the four last episodes of season two were at the show at its best. I think it never quite got as good as that again, uh, unfortunately. But absolutely amazing. I loved Londo and Jakar and their backwards and forwards and everything that them, those characters were to each other. I loved it. Great, great interplay between them. Great acting. And great scripts. JMS absolutely knocked it out of the park so much for me. As I said earlier, said earlier, I was fascinated by Kosh and the mystery of Kosh I loved and guessed well early on. I actually wanted it to be. In fact, from the gathering, I think, that I wanted him to be an angel. I had that idea that that's what it was going to be. And I remember going to a comic shop in New York and these guys were talking about Babylon 5. I didn't know who the guys were. And so I pepped in and stuff because they're all missing just in Babylon 5 talk. And they're saying, what do you think Kosh is then? And I said, well, I think he's an angel. And like, they were laughing at me as if it was something ridiculous to say. And I said, no, it's not going to be an angel. I said, well, what do you think it is? And they said, it's going to be like a big dragon or something. So yeah, they were nearly right, wasn't it, in the end? But I loved that idea about the, the ancient aliens, um, you know, advancing and helping uh, younger civilizations and stuff like that and getting involved with them and the whole idea that that roots back to our past and all the ancient aliens idea. I'm fascinated with all that. And that fusion of spirituality and religion in there as well, these massive concepts that the whole show took on, um, it's something I've always been interested in. This made me even more interested in it because it sort of went along with the, the ideas that I was having personally. Uh, as Rob Rob will know, because he listened to my book Eternal, an audio adaptation I did, that fusion of sci-fi and religion and spirituality, I should say more, is always is obviously something that's that's fascinating to me. So this this show really grabbed hold of that, and I loved. Loved it when he when Kosh came out. He certainly looked like an angel, and he looked like an angel to different uh, races and stuff like that, and different aliens. Absolutely fantastic idea. So for me, the whole shadow war and against the Vorlons and this idea of this forces of light against these forces of darkness was a uni a massive sort of universal concept, if you know what I mean. That that I thought was going to be built into something bigger than what it actually did. So I had such high expectations that he was somehow going to give us the meaning of the universe inside this show that was going to be five five years long. So, yeah, I went to a, a Babylon 5 convention in Blackpool in, I think it was 97. I know it was maybe during the middle of season three being transmitted. 
and I think they'd finished wrapping season. Yeah, that was right. And then, uh, yeah, and Jakar was there. Well, that Andrew Katsoulis, Andrea Katsoulis, and playing Jakar was there. And uh, well, got loads of them. And JMS and and Sheridan and, and Bruce Boxer whatever his name is. Uh, oh, it's superb. Absolutely loved it. And I managed to ask Jakar a question and stuff. And I remember one bit really fondly is that Andrew Katsoulis read out the final Jakar uh, talk over at the end of season three. Obviously, this hadn't been transmitted yet. He read out that final sequence of what Jakar says at the end, his little speech. And the whole auditorium was dead quiet and lights were low and everything. It was so atmospheric. And up in the like the balconies, the side of the hall, JMS was stood watching everybody and listening to it all happening. And when Jakar finished, there was this huge round of applause and everyone saw him up there, JMS, and was like bowing to him and stuff. It was a magic moment and it proved how much we were all invested in this in this show and how much in this story. So when season four came along and the end of the Shadow War sort of happened, my own experience of that was that it was spoilt for me by the internet because by this time the internet was a thing. I was going around to my brothers on his computer and I was looking up the sort of episode guides for the upcoming season four, and I think it started what well, it did. It started in America earlier than it did over here, so they were sending reviews through and and you know story things, and and I was reading them like an idiot because I was dead excited to know what's going to happen next. And unfortunately, obviously, the end of the episode I think it's six of season four where the Shadow War ends. I'd read all that as a thing first of this what happens and review was oh it's really disappointing and all that so I my whole thing was my bubble was burst then uh, in a way but so I still obviously thought well I'll give it a go and see what it's like and uh, yeah disappointed in how it all ended the fact that Sharon just said to these huge alien races get the hell out of our galaxy and, and went the whole idea that these four years were building up to that moment for me was a bit of a disappointment to say the least uh, but you know what else could it be? Now I'd already written the end of this in my head, I think, and it was it was much sort of grander and bigger, and and every, you know God was involved in all sorts. But <laughs> obviously they couldn't go down that route, so I don't know what else we could have done. But uh, but it was the moment where the show was never the same for me really. After that, it was the Earth Alliance war, and while it looked good and then special effects were great, it never really. I wasn't really that interested in that side, even though it's good to see that all resolved. So, yeah, and then season five got a last-minute commission, didn't it? Because they were going to stop it in season four, and suddenly they got another year, and you feel you feel it, and it's, it looks cheap. The stories are just very average. It's run on empty, really. Season season five is is the lowest part of the show. Um, and then it ended, didn't it, with, with Sleeping in Light, which is obviously filmed at the end of season four. And for me, this was this mythical episode that, again, was going to be this the most incredible thing where, I don't know, there was going to be some amazing spiritual revelation inside it or something. So it never really happened in that way, even though it was a beautiful ending in its own way. And I don't, as I said, I don't know what else could have done. Uh, the just last scene could have been a little bit longer for me and a little bit more drawn out in music and get the emotional impact of what was happening. But um, instead of just cutting to a picture of the production crew all like, right, we're finished now, bye. Uh, and then, uh, so yeah... But I got them all on, on VHS, not only recording off telly, but I was buying the blooming VHSs as well and had to throw them away. Since it got it on DVD, the box set, all the box sets, I got it quite a while ago actually, and rewatched it again during the 2000s and really enjoyed it uh, because it's a, it's a great show. TV movies were poor, 
Crusade was poor, and the Lost Tales thing. I didn't mind the uh, the one with Avon, uh, not Avon, what was it the possessed guy? Yeah, whatever was going on then, him. Yeah, quite like that. So all in all, it's my third favourite TV show of all time, behind uh, obviously Doctor Who and Game of Thrones. Has just, as I say, recently just nipped it a little bit above. Uh, below Babylon Five would be Firefly. And my number five, I'm not quite decided. It's probably all the Star Treks, if I can count them as one thing. Yeah, that's, that's about right. Oh, yeah. Would I like to see Babylon 5 come back as a movie? Uh, don't know. Don't know how we'd do it. Uh, but it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? But I'd like to go see the Volons. Let's find out what was really going on there, because that was never really explained, was it? That much? Never mind. Anyway, Babylon 5. Yeah, big thumbs up. Loved it. Uh, love your show as well, guys. Thanks very much. Great podcast. I'll always enjoy listening to you. And uh, any new listeners have never heard me before, I'm on Proctoru, where who and Prog collide. And we talk about Doctor Who and play uh, three little tunes. Well, sometimes a bit bigger. But anyway, there's three of us, not just me ranting on. But anyway, have a listen. That's it. I've got to go. Bye. Thanks for having me. See you later. Bye. You've been listening to Alternate Galaxies, the podcast where Rob and Dave from the Doctor Who show take a look at other great sci-fi and fantasy that we think Doctor Who fans might like. You can reach us at hello at the dwshow.net, on Twitter at the dwshow, or on Facebook forward slash the dwshow. Alternate Galaxies is an irregular podcast, so stay tuned to the Doctor Who show and other programs on our feed to know when the next episode's coming. Our theme music is called Wretched Destroyer and is by Kevin McLeod. Find him at incompetech.com. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.